Hello and welcome to Akathisia Stories, a podcast co-production of MIST and Studio C. MIST, the medication-induced Suicide Prevention and Education Foundation in memory of Stuart Dolan, is a unique nonprofit organization dedicated to honoring the memory of Stuart and other victims of akathisia by raising awareness and educating the public about the dangers of akathisia. MIST aims to ensure that people suffering from akathisia's symptoms are accurately diagnosed so that needless deaths are prevented. The Foundation advocates truth and disclosure, honesty in reporting, and legitimate drug trials. On this episode, we hear from Angela Peacock. At age 18, Angela went into the United States Army, where she rose to the rank of sergeant. Five years into her service, the U.S. invaded Iraq and Angela was deployed to Baghdad. For a variety of reasons, the deployment took a physical and mental toll on her, and within six months, she was medevaced out of Iraq to recover in Germany. A day after her evacuation, one of the soldiers in the platoon was badly injured, requiring medical assistance in the same military hospital where she was recovering. And he was like clearly traumatized, you know, it had just happened 48 hours prior. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. I just felt like out of control. I just, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to handle it. I just said, okay, I can't hear anymore. I got to go. And I just walked out of his room and I walked down the hall and I, I didn't have anything in my mind at that point to like, go get help. I just saw the sign. It said psychiatry arrow. I was like, I need to talk to somebody right now. And I just walked straight into the office and I was like, my soldier just told me what happened. I don't know what to do. I'm having a hard time as it is readjusting to Iraq or to back to Germany. I feel like I almost died. And then the answer was, here's a prescription. We'll have Angela's full story in a moment. September 20th is International Akathisia Awareness Day and an excellent opportunity to talk with friends and family about prescription drugs that can cause akathisia and other severe psychiatric side effects. September is also Suicide Awareness Month and MIST calls on mental health and suicide prevention organizations to take akathisia out of the darkness and save lives. Now open at 1707 Central Street in Evanston, Illinois, Studio C is a creative workspace available by the hour. Gather around our mid-sized ping pong table for your next client meeting, video conference, or table read. Record a podcast episode, teach your InDesign or drawing students, or convert the space for a book signing, video screening, photo shoot, or weekend trunk show. Just a few of the ways that you can get creative at Studio C. Visit StudioCChicago.com for more information. Angela Peacock is a former U.S. Army sergeant and subject of the documentary film Medicating Normal. Diagnosed with PTSD after one deployment to Iraq in 2003, she was over-medicated for it for over a decade and a half. She suffered from akathisia during a medically supervised taper and during withdrawal. Angie is part of the Medicating Normal Outreach Team, having already facilitated more than 150 post-screening panel discussions with communities worldwide. 
Her past roles include Veterans of Foreign Wars Legislative Fellow, Wounded Warrior Project Courage Award recipient, and finalist for Student Veteran of the Year with Student Veterans of America. She is a mental health advocate, writer, and YouTube creator who travels in her camper van across the United States with her service dog, Raider, in an effort to improve the mental health care system for veterans and civilians alike. Before we get to my interview with Angela, we're going to hear an excerpt from the 2019 documentary, Medicating Normal. In it, you'll hear Angela in an on-screen consultation with military psychologist Mary Neal Featon, who in the second part of the excerpt is leading a PTSD workshop that includes Angela as one of the attendees. Like, I feel like I'm waking up from a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Like, what the f*** just happened to my life? You lost years of your life. You lost your career. There's just so many things yeah. that, that are losses in here. That's part of the, the situation that we're in right now as a culture, is that if you run to the doctor and cry about this, they're going to say, oh, you have major depression, and you're going to stick you on the next pill. Not one thing in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, the fifth edition, the Bible of Psychiatry, not one thing in there is isolated by science. There's no physical findings. There's no PET scan. There's no MRI. There's no blood test. There's just behavior that has been described by psychiatry and labeled aberrant, and they set a cutoff, and then they voted into this book. The power that I had as a military psychologist to say, you are not normal, I could destroy your career. I can send you home. I can, I can label you with something that you can never overcome. My thanks to the filmmakers for the use of that clip. You can stream the full documentary at medicatingnormal.com. Now, here's my interview with Angela Peacock. Will you begin by talking about the sense of self that you had prior to being medicated? In our previous conversation, you told me that you were happy and energetic and good at your job and that you had thrived in high school. So in high school, I played a lot of sports. I was in all the leadership clubs. I did student council, Amnesty International. I was always engaged in a lot of activities, sports, always in good health, uh, cheery, lots of friends, things to do on the weekends. And, and the military was much the same. I was really good at my job. I was physically active, physically fit. You know, I had a boyfriend. We would take weekend trips to the beach. Um, How old were you when you went into the military? Were you 18? I went in at 18 and uh, came out at 24. And why did you go into the military? Uh, this was during the high point of the Iraq War. Oh, no, I went in in 1998, about six months after I graduated high school. And there was it was a couple of things. It was uh, my grandparents were both in World War II. My grandma was a air traffic controller. Um, my grandfather did sheet metal work all the air, aircraft in the Air Force. So it was kind of like a family tradition. And I was the oldest granddaughter. So it wasn't like it's expected, but it was that I had the most exposure to it. And I would see my grandpa in uniform. And I just thought that would be something really cool to do. The second reason was I'm a very adventurous kind of person. I like to live life and have these experiences and meet people from other cultures. And I thought I was helping and I was patriotic. And then the third reason was kind of, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. It's kind of like if you grew up there, you don't leave and you get kind of stuck. And I didn't have a lot of college money or a lot of opportunity. So I thought, well, if I could join the military and get some opportunity and um, make that career, that would be awesome. If not, I would get some college money and that would be awesome too. So that's why I joined the military. Yeah. So you were in the military for several years. Seven years. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually 
I mean, if you started in 98, you spent five years not seeing combat. Yes, and, and then, you train for it. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, you're in this cauldron. Yeah, and you train for you know war zones, but it's not anything like training. When you get there, it's completely different. You can train to an extent, and then when you're there and it's in your face and your like, threat of your life is flashing before your eyes and you realize like this is not training, this is real, you know? Yeah, so you're in the military and you were sent to Iraq, to Baghdad. Yes. You lost a lot of weight in Iraq and experienced a lot of trauma. And eventually you were medevaced out of Iraq when your convoy was hit. Well, I was, it was a day before my convoy was hit. Actually, I was med- medically evacuated for all the like rapid weight loss. I had nosebleeds. I was fainting. I had low grade fevers, which slowly turned into like panic attacks because I was like, I'm going to die in this place. And I don't know what's wrong with me. I had gastrointestinal problems, migraines, all kinds of weird symptoms, uh, fast heart rate, things like that. Were any of those things symptoms that you had ever experienced prior to going into? No. When I went into Baghdad, Iraq, I was healthy. I was um, just promoted to sergeant. I led a bunch of soldiers. I had lots of awards. I was completely healthy, 100% healthy. You can't even enter a war zone without passing what's called a pre-deployment screening. So you go through this whole physical, you get all your immunizations, you go to the doctor, you have a checkup, you know, they run blood work, everything. I was completely normal going into Iraq. And then I, I quickly deteriorated very quick. And uh, I think it was a mixture between like lots of vaccines, lots of anti-malarial drugs that we were given, birth control shot I was given, environmental hazards, burn pits, just germs that my body wasn't used to. I drank water that it was probably not as safe, but when you're, it's 130 degrees and there's no water and they give you the water that you're supposed to drink, you drink it. So a combination of all those things, I think is what led to me being medically evacuated. And the day after I was medically evacuated is when my convoy was hit and my soldier came back on a gurney and landed in the same hospital that I was at back in Germany. And that is what led to me walking to the psychiatrist's office because I just thought I had so much trauma in such a short period of time. I couldn't contain it. And the feelings that I was having, and I was terrified and just like, I don't know. I just felt like a boiling pot of tea and I, I blew it. I, you know, it was, the sound was coming out. I couldn't contain what I was feeling anymore. Yeah. And what period of time was that between the time you arrived in Baghdad. Yeah, and- I would say six months. It was con- every single day you're driving in convoys through horrible neighborhoods, uh, small arms fire all around you. You have to pay attention to every little movement in the crowd. People, you know, there's stories of people throwing grenades off of an overpass, like roadkill that had bombs in it, children carrying bombs, and you didn't want kids to get close to you. So you're constantly like scanning to make sure you're safe and like nobody's going to get killed today. And then on top of that, I'm physically ill and I'm having all these like problems and I'm losing weight and I can feel my ribs and see my cheekbones in the mirror. And I'm horrified and thinking I'm not going to ever see my family again. So it was like threat of constant death, either from the war or from this illness that I had contracted that nobody was going to help me with and being trapped in a war zone with no medical treatment. It was all that that kind of led up to, and then my soldier gets injured and he comes back on a gurney and I'm like, I can't feel this anymore. Like it's too much. So what what happened was after the soldier came back to Germany and I talked to his nurse and she said, he's going to go to surgery. You can come by in like 48 hours. Once he's in the recovery room, you can talk to him. Then I went to talk to him and I said, you know, like what happened? And he told me, you know, we were driving through this very dangerous part. 
And all of a sudden I heard an explosion and a bomb went off. And apparently some of the shrapnel went through my back and I was bleeding out. So he started getting really upset about it and he started yelling and like, I just want to go back there and I want to get revenge. And I can't believe they, you know, I almost died. And he was like clearly traumatized, you know, and it just happened 48 hours prior. It was like, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. I just felt like out of control. I just, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to handle it. Um, I just said, okay, I can't hear anymore. I got to go. And I just walked out of his room and I walked down the hall and I, I didn't have anything in my mind at that point to like, go get help. I just saw the sign. It said psychiatry arrow. I was like, I need to talk to somebody right now. And I just walked straight into the office and I was like, my soldier just told me what happened. I don't know what to do. I'm having a hard time as it is readjusting to Iraq or to back to Germany. I feel like I almost died. And then the answer was, here's a prescription. And was that a pretty short conversation that led to that prescription being given? Yeah, I think 10 minutes. I, I remember sitting down and him closing the door. And I mean, before he even closed the door, it was the, the conversation was over. Yeah. And so you went on Clonopin. And what happened? And, and how long did it take before you started to get that sense that, you know what, these drugs are not only not helping me, they seem to be making things worse? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I started getting worse right away, but those symptoms were told to me to be, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. That's what's wrong with you. You have post-traumatic stress, you know? And and then I was like, I felt like I had caught this like brain disease or something, you know? So all my symptoms then went into this nice little box of that's what PTSD is. This is what you're suffering from. So, you know, I I remember having like more panic attacks, not being able to sleep. I was scared to go outside. I lived in a barracks room really close to a airfield. And when the airplanes would land, I would get scared and like hunker down. And it was like a, like a startle response. So at the time I thought it was post-traumatic stress disorder. And I reported those symptoms and they told me that's what it was. But now looking back all these years, I'm like, no, that was a reaction to the drug immediately. That's what was happening, you know? So it took me, I mean... I think I started getting doubts a couple years later. Like, why am I on all these meds? They, they don't seem to be working. Why don't I have friends? I'm not going out anymore. Why am I stuck in my house all the time? If these drugs work, why am I not better? These doubts started kind of coming up. And I, I just happened to meet a psychiatrist who said, you know, who put you on all these medications? I was on 18 at the same time at this point, And this was 2006. And he said, if I get you a hospital room, can I take you off? a lot of them. And I said, sure. So I went into the hospital for like 30 days. He took me off like 10 of the drugs. I don't even remember how many, but so I was left with like six or eight or something. I experienced withdrawal during that point in time. It wasn't severe though, but again, I was still on a lot of other drugs. Then it just slowly over the years, I slowly taper one thing and then taper the next thing. And I think I was just taking like a harm reduction approach. Not that I had a goal in mind that I would get off of everything, but just slowly to see kind of what I feel better if I took less. Well, if we could back up. Uh, so we went from you being prescribed clonopin to you being on this mix of 18 drugs. Oh, yeah. yeah. How did that happen? And what was the period of time over which that did happen? Well, I, would, I assume that, you know, you're on the drugs and then you're having trouble sleeping and they prescribe something for that. And then you're anxious and they prescribe something else for that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I started on one drug. It started with clonopin. Then it went to 18 drugs within two years. So it was first, it was just the benzo. Then the psych, a new psychiatrist prescribed an SSRI. 
then I couldn't sleep. So then I went to like an ambient kind of drug, like a sleep drug, trazodone or something. And then I remember my, I still had this rapid heart rate. So they sent me to cardiology. Then they put me on a beta blocker. Then I started having stomach problems. So then it was a, a pill for your stomach, another pill for headaches, another pill for chronic pain. And then that antidepressant didn't really work. So let's switch to a new one. It just like slowly snowballed into 18 drugs. It was an antidepressant, a stimulant, a sleep drug, panic attacks, you know, a benzo for anxiety, uh, pain medicine, headache medicine, stomach medicine, all of it together was 18. And as the number of medications multiplied, so did the diagnoses that they were giving you Yeah. to include major depression, generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD, panic disorder. And you say in the film that you wondered what all those labels did for you. Yeah. I think when I got that last diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder, by that time, I was just so angry and so over it. It just felt like a ridiculous caricature of what help was supposed to be. It was, here's a bunch of pills and here's a bunch of diagnoses and none of them really work for you, but here's another one. Let's just see if this one fits or sticks or whatever. And it just felt ridiculous to me at that point. That was a new therapist. I had just started going to him. I had a lot of hope. I was like, I got a new one. Maybe this will really be the one that helps. And then he had me fill out a little quiz about my symptoms and they pulled the DSM out. He looked in the DSM and he was like, well, you scored high for generalized anxiety disorder. And I just thought like, that's not what I came here for. I came here to get help, not to get another label. You're not even listening to me. You're not even talking to me. You're helping having me fill out a quiz, you know? And by that time I was just, I was just so disillusioned by the whole thing. And by that time, as you say, you're long out of the military. Yeah. But while you were still in the military, uh, they declared you disabled. And you recall in the documentary that you didn't know how you went from this super soldier and sergeant to disabled at 25. Yeah. I mean, it was very drastic. It was, I was winning boards. I was getting promoted. I reenlisted. I went into a war zone. I was taking care of my soldiers too. I can't leave my bedroom. I can't sleep. I'm panicking at every, every little noise makes me think it's a gunshot Everything is reminding me of war. Everything is like I'm being traumatized just sitting here in my body. It was like overnight. It was so drastic. I, I mean, I just remember the last day I laid on the couch and I looked, I watched my husband at the time leaving for work. And so he put his uniform on and he walked out the door and it was the first time that I didn't have to put my uniform on and walk out the door in seven years. And I was like, what am I supposed to do now? Like I'm I'm disabled. I was medically retired with an honorable discharge from the military after seven years of service. That was all I knew. I had all my eggs in that basket. And now I'm like completely medicated. Can't leave my couch. Don't leave the house. No friends, no relationships, no job. What am I supposed to do? I'm now I'm disabled. Yeah. You just mentioned your husband and he eventually left your marriage and you lost your career. And in fact, you say you lost your thirties. Yeah. The losses here are enormous. I lost my army career. I lost my husband at the time, you know, ex-husband. I lost many relationships, like all my high school friends. I really broke contact with them because I'd been away for so long. Then I started to lose like my sexual feelings, my femininity. You know, I stopped like caring about personal hygiene. This is all from being in the mental health system, being on all these medications. I stopped leaving the house, disengaged from my community my family. I stopped like talking to my sisters and brothers, like everything. I was just this person that lived in a house that 
read books and watched TV all day and chased, you know, doctors and therapists and told people what was wrong with me all the time and got new prescriptions all the time. And I just did what I was told. That's what I thought I was supposed to do, you know, and I thought these people are going to help me and I'm going to get my life back. And I mean, looking back on it, it's a blur. I'm like, what did I do for 10 years? I don't even remember. I can't even remember. There's no memory there. And then you, as I slowly started coming off the drugs, I start like waking up, like, wait a minute. Like, why don't I have friends? It's been 10 years. I've been home for 10 years and I don't know anybody in St. Louis. Like what is, I don't understand what happened to my life, you know? Yeah. You've also said that the drugs made you feel numbed and anxious and depressed, but never happy, grateful, or loving. No. Like I, I had friends that would say, Angie, you just need to do a gratitude journal. And I would try and try and try. And I, it's like, I could not even feel that emotion. I don't know what that feeling feels like. I'm trying to pull it up. I'm really trying to be grateful. You know, even when I would like calm myself down or something, I would look for it. Like, do where, is there any gratitude in there? Like nothing. I didn't have any happy feelings. It was always like depression, anxiety, sadness, grief, panic, fear. Those were all the emotions that I had. And I, I remember telling a psychiatrist about that. And she was like, oh, that's just your PTSD. You know, that's you're cut off from other people. You don't have sexual feelings. That's your trauma. It was never the drug could be causing this or the cocktails of drugs you're on could could be the cause. So you eventually were off all of these drugs uh, through a long process of tapering. And then the sort of combination of tapering and cold turkey created a lot of new symptoms for you. And some of those were uh, would probably be categorized as more psychotic. Yeah. In fact, you describe it as chemical mental torture. Yeah. So I tapered for many years, um, always under the medical supervision. And then I had one drug left and that was a benzodiazepine called lorazepam. The brand name is Ativan. So as I tapered lower and lower on that, I started getting more anxiety. I started having like these seizure-like episodes where my body would just like jerk and my arms would fly out like a snow angel or something like, you know, I would get blood pressure spikes. I'd get like periods of vertigo where the entire room was spinning, all these physical weird symptoms, pain in my spine. I couldn't sit down for about two years, like on a toilet, my spine hurt so bad. It was like this burning and uh, any little bend in my spine would cause it to just excruciating. So I started seeking out doctors, getting all this medical testing. They couldn't find anything wrong with me. And I'm, I didn't know it was the drug or the, I didn't know it was like, could be symptoms of tolerance as I was getting lower. These withdrawal symptoms were peaking out. I, I had no idea about any of this. No doctor recognized that. So then um, there came a period where I, I got down to like one milligram of Ativan and I started getting suicidal thoughts. And then the suicidal thoughts turned into like this urges where I felt like I was going to do it and I wouldn't have any control over my body. So one day I was um, in the kitchen chopping carrots. I was making pot roast or something. And I just had this undescribable urge to stab myself in the stomach. And that had never happened to me before. And for me to have this thought about a knife going through my stomach, I just, it scared me so bad. Cause I was like, this is not of me. Like, this is not something that I would think about, you know? So I drove myself to the hospital and voluntarily um, was admitted and then when I got to see the doctor the next day, I said, you know, obviously this anti-anxiety medication isn't working because I have more anxiety than I've ever had in my entire life. And now I'm suicidal on top of it. So can you just take me off of it? And so they, they obliged and they cold turkeyed me at that point. And that's when a few days later I was discharged. I went back home 
and it was like the gates of hell opened first it started with like these weird sensations in my calf muscles like little pinpricks like shocks and then i my blood pressure went up i was sensitive to light sensitive to touch my skin hurt and then it was adrenaline, like full on, like I, somebody was going to throw me out of a skydive. You know, I'm going skydiving out of an airplane without a parachute at gunpoint. It was just incredible amount of fear that I did not even know existed on this plane of existence. <laughs> I don't know. It was like, I felt like I could rip my skin off and go running down the street and run a marathon. It was like undescribable torture. And that's the way I, that word isn't even strong enough. Then I started having like, I guess you would call psychotic thoughts about, uh, I would see like bloody images in my mind of me being hurt, of my family being hurt, of my niece and her school and things happening and shootings and school shootings. And I was like, oh my God, is like, why am I thinking these things? And then I would, the thoughts themselves would scare me. And so then I would have like a spike of adrenaline because I was scared. Like, why are, why are you thinking about these things? Stop, you know? And then because I would have that spike of adrenaline, then I would think, oh my God, are you going to be the one that does it? And I was like, no, I don't want to do anything like that to anybody's kids. This is my niece. You know, I love her. I just want to drive her to school. Why am I thinking all this stuff? I it was like only by the grit of my own teeth. And the reason that I knew that it was the drug that did this, that is the only reason nothing bad ever happened. I think is I had just enough sanity in me to hold on to reality 1%. And that kept me from anything bad happening, either killing myself or harming somebody else. And I got through by the skin of my teeth one second at a time. I swear to God, because it was the scariest thing I've ever been through. And speaking of which, that lasted about two years. And was it relentless around the clock? Around the clock. I mean, the first 11 months, I didn't sleep more than two hours. It was constant, suicidal, homicidal, psychotic thoughts, images, you know, things like kill yourself, kill yourself. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're having a stroke. You're having a seizure, like constant repeating in my head combined with that undescribable, uh, like a pressure inside my body, trying to push its way out combined with being on fire with pure fear and adrenaline and needing to run or I did everything except pace. I had the feeling that I needed to pace, but it never, I I remember thinking, Angie, if you start pacing, you're not going to stop. I have no idea what that means, but I had everything else that is characterized as ecthesia except that the walking part. And I was just terrified. And you said that at the time, you didn't have that in your vocabulary. No. The term ecthesia. I didn't know what that was. Uh Uh-uh. And in fact, I mean, as we talk about a lot of this stuff sitting here in 2021, you have the vocabulary and the information that allows you to kind of contextualize everything that happened. But during the time that you were experiencing all of this, uh, you didn't know about, you know, the potential harms of tapering and cold turkey. Yeah. I mean, what happened was I, um, when I was about a week off of everything is when I did a Google benzo withdrawal. And when it popped up, it said all these symptoms. And I was like, oh my God, that's what's happening to me. But before that moment, I had no idea that was a thing. I had a psychology degree. I had been to AA meetings, NA meetings, retreats, therapists, all kinds of people. Nobody ever said anything about, oh, you know, all those drugs that you're on, you might experience withdrawal when you try to come off of them. Nobody ever mentioned that. I never was exposed to a thing called antidepressant withdrawal or benzo withdrawal and a psychology degree program. That was never mentioned. So I had no idea that a drug could do that. Zero. 
And then uh, the first two months when I got cut off of the drug abruptly, I could not even speak. It was like my brain just blew up. I couldn't hardly look at my phone. If I saw anybody's face, I was terrified of their face. So I did find a benzo support group that didn't have any pictures on it, which like really helped me. It didn't have any pictures, you said? Yeah, it didn't have like pictures of people's faces. So that like was the only thing I could access. And I would write a sentence and say like, I don't know what's happening to me. And then I would skip a line and I would write, my brain feels like it blew up. You know, like I couldn't even like write a coherent sentence because that's how like impaired I was. So it wasn't until I was four months off when I found the other support groups and I was a little bit well enough to be able to read them and like comprehend what was happening to me and realize, oh my gosh, this is the drug that's doing it. It's not you. You're going to get better. People get better from this, but it's going to take a really long time, you know, and be careful, stay away from doctors because they might make you worse. You know, don't take anything else. Just stay home and survive. And one of the symptoms you described or one of the feelings that you described was you felt like you were plugged into a light socket, which is, you know, getting back to the topic of akathisia. That's one of the common things that I've heard and also that feeling of wanting to rip your skin off. Yeah. And at some point you did learn this term akathisia. Yeah. Was that after you had experienced it? Yeah. I would see that word flash up when I would read through the groups and then I would see like little things about like this person killed themselves because they had it. I would see, you know, most people don't heal from it. It takes years. I would see like a little snippet here and I would like purposely like turn it off, turn it off. Don't, don't read about it. Cause I don't want to know. Like, I just didn't want to know. And I didn't want to um, read more to scare me or already I was terrified. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it till tomorrow. I didn't want to have another reason to like, maybe kill myself. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And then um, when Wendy Dolan came to our film screening, it was July, 2019 and we were in Chicago and Wendy Dolan of Mist came and she stood up and said, you know, why didn't you all mention akathisia in the film? This is when she uh, came to the Medicaid normal screening. And she said, why didn't you mention akathisia? That's what you and Dave were suffering from. And I was like, oh my gosh, she like recognized it, you know? And, and there's another, you know, misconception, like in our support groups, people say like, if you didn't pace, then you didn't have it. It's like, they try to say that it's only pacing. And so then I thought, well, I didn't have it because I didn't pace. And so then I like took myself out of the equation, you know, but even now, like when I stand at a grocery store and I'm at the checkout, I can't stop rocking back and forth. So it's like, now I, now I have that weird manifestation of not being able to sit still or moving too much. I have that now, but that, that didn't manifest until like two years later, you know? So I think it, it, it comes in different forms for different people and their experiences. And in those support groups that you mentioned, uh, you were trying to help others. And you told me previously that you thought that if you didn't help others, that you would kill yourself. Yeah, it, it really was a big distraction to just read all day long. I literally would lay on my phone underneath the blanket and try to focus all of my attention as much as I could just on the words I was reading and all these on, on, on the people that I was talking to. And, you know, sometimes I needed help. Like I couldn't go grocery shopping because I was filled with that terror and that pain in my body. And I just could not I couldn't even get in the car to drive down the street. I was like, just out of my mind. And so people would help me, but then in return, I would just lay there and read and give them comments of support and help as much as I could. And it just was a good distraction. And it kind of kept me alive. And there's people that had akathisia that I was talking to that literally could not stop moving and were like one girl in Canada was like cutting down brush in her yard because she couldn't stop moving. Another girl 
she couldn't even put her clothes on because she was constantly like moving and just anything touching her skin was like extremely painful. So it was like, we all got each other through that experience together. You know, people around us didn't believe us. Our doctors didn't believe us. And meanwhile, we were like hanging by the edge of a thread to not die. Did you lose anyone though in that? Yeah. I, yeah. I lost, um, yeah. One person that I was kind of close to, I would message a lot. And you don't, you always hear of others that maybe you'd, you'd talk to in passing or you left a comment of support here or there. Yeah, there's a few. So the film that we've been talking about, uh, going back to the beginning of how that came to be, how you came to be featured in it, uh, you told me that you saw some filmmaker ads and a filmmaker actually DM'd you. Yes. You started talking and, and she wore you down and finally you consented to be in the film. Yeah. And they would come to do more video every few months. And, and you said that this kind of saved you because you didn't want to die while being in this film. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I just remember the one of the filmmakers flew into St. Louis and we went for a walk and I told her a little bit more of my story. You know, I hadn't gone as far as telling her like the psychotic stuff I was feeling or the intense suicidal stuff that I was going through. But I told her a little bit more of kind of what was happening and, um, I dropped her off at her hotel room and she closed the car door. And I remember thinking, okay, well, Angie, you cannot kill yourself because you can't be in a movie. And then at the end of the movie, they're going to say, oh, Angela Peacock was a great person, but she ended up, you know, succumbing to the injury and killed herself. And so I, it gave me something to look forward to. And they do have that in the closing. Yeah. And, and I was glad to see that everyone had survived. We made it. Yeah. 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 You know, so they kept me going and the filming kept me going and knowing I was being part of something that would share about what was happening that not a lot of people were talking about. It all really kept me going. And then during the time of the film's release, uh, that's kept you going in a different way because you've been very active and participating with these community screenings and speaking to the audiences. Yeah. How did that come about? So originally what happened was uh, the film was released in July of 2019. I had just graduated from college in May of 19. Believe it or not, I made it through school feeling like this. I, my lease was up and the film was all coming out at the same time. And so I approached the filmmakers and said, hey, what would it be like? Could I travel with the film and show it in different communities in person? Would you all support me in that? And they said, sure, like, let's do it. Let's get the film out there. So what I did was I just plotted on the map like, I think let's do Arizona and who do we know in Arizona? And I would find somebody in Phoenix and say like, do you have any connections to any mental health groups in Phoenix? And let's host a screening with them. And then I would drive myself to Phoenix and set up the library and the projector screen and get it all the seats prepared and um, host a little screening. And then we would do a discussion after where people could bring their own experiences and I could talk about mine or answer questions. And then I'd move to another city the next week and do it you know, in Los Angeles or San Francisco. And this was just you. This wasn't like you traveling with the filmmakers or anything. No, just me and an RV driving across the country and my dog. Yep. And you're still doing it. I'm still doing it. Uh, the, what happened was the pandemic happened and everything kind of screeched to a halt. We no longer had any in-person events. It all went online, but that in a way that was cool because we got to record the conversations and we could put them up on YouTube where in person it was very intimate and there was a lot of crying and it was uh, sad and tragic, the stories that you'd hear. But, you know, now through the pandemic, uh, we've been able to, you know, host more screenings abroad where we couldn't do that before. And then we can record them for others to see later. For a list of upcoming community screenings of Medicating Normal, please visit medicatingnormal.com 
slash watch. On that site, you can also buy tickets to stream the film and find a variety of helpful resources and research topics. If you'd like to find out more and get the best information about this important topic of akathisia, the MIST website is a great place to start. If you go to our website, the section that says, what is akathisia, you will see the two MIST videos, mm. as well as we have an educational PDF that you can print off. We also are on Facebook and Twitter. If you like this podcast, learn more about akathisia and just send it to your contacts. And this is the way we spread our message. And I hope that people will really look at the signs and symptoms of akathisia. They're listed in the videos, listed on the website. That's MIST founder Wendy Dolan. You've been listening to the Akathisia Stories podcast. We'll have another episode later this month. It will feature Heather McCarthy. If you'd like to share your own story for this podcast, please email studio.c.chicago at gmail.com and please share this podcast and subscribe. I'm Andy Miles, and I'd like to thank Angela Peacock for her time and candor. And I'd like to thank you for listening.